0: Today we are going to talk about good advice and bad advice. And it may have been bad advice to uh, try and remount that horse at the end of that video. Uh, Hey, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Can we just agree on one thing to begin with? Would that be all right? just agree on one thing? That it is time to put an end to grown men walking around in public with a cowboy hat on. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you ever see these guys? They're out there everywhere. They're in the grocery store. They're at the airport. They're at the bank. They're just walking around with their cowboy hat on like I'm not wearing a cowboy hat. How you doing, ma'am? I see, ma'am. Here's my thing. If you are going to wear a cowboy it's okay at the rodeo, right? It's okay out on your property. But if you walk into an Albertsons with a cowboy hat on, you definitely had better work with livestock. There better be a time where somebody said, hey, you want to go get a beer? And you're like, no, I got to go shear me some sheep. That's, that's what I wanted to see happen here, okay? So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, hey, partner, will you hold on to my hat for me? Thank you, brother. Hey, we are going to talk about uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We are starting a new series this morning, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we are talking about the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel, right? Um, and we are working our way through the Old Testament, as Glenn told you. Uh, in 2019, we studied the Judges. In 2020, we did a series on King David out on the lawn during the pandemic. Last year, we did a series called The Man Who Had It All. It was on King Solomon and, uh, and, and, that was in 2021, and today we are looking at Kings and Chronicles in 2022. So if you've got a Bible, open them up. We're in First Kings chapter 11 at the end. I've got the ser- sermon notes in front of you, plus we got scriptures up on the screen. There's actually a lot of scripture because we're telling a story today. So I just want to bring you back up to speed for the nation of Israel. God had promised them some promised land and they had eventually entered that promised land and and eventually God allowed them to have kings. They didn't really need kings, but God said, okay, whatever, have your kings. The first king was King Saul and King Saul, it said, was ruggedly handsome. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else, but King Saul was a train wreck as a king. He, yeah, he was. If you know the story, he was a train wreck as a king. After that, we had King David. Now, King David was a great king. We all know he had some moments there where he obviously derailed a little bit. But the Bible records, and we hear that King David was a man after God's own heart. And so when David's son Solomon took the throne, we know that da- Solomon became the richest and the wisest uh, man who ever lived. But near the end of Solomon's reign, we saw that he allowed the women in his life, he had a whole slew of wives and concubines, and he allowed these women in his life to sort of derail him from God and get him to worship other gods. And so this morning, that's where we pick up the story. And so I wanted you to take a look. First Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 9. Let's jump into it. Read along with me, if you would. The Lord was very angry with Solomon. For his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about what? Worshiping other gods. Don't do it. But Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, who? David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take the kingdom away from who? I'll take it away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of how much? Just one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. So we're gonna see in this story that when Solomon dies, he's gonna pass his kingdom on to one of his sons and his name is Rehoboam. Everybody say Rehoboam. 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 There's a new sheriff in town. And Rehoboam's his name. Okay? That's who comes in. Uh, that, that term, there's a new sheriff in town, is sort of an idiom. And what it means is there's a new person coming to power and they're going to shake things up. They're going to make some changes around here. And so there's a new sheriff in town in Israel. Take a look. 1 Kings 11, verse 42 and 43. It says, Solomon ruled over ruled in Jerusalem over all Israel for how long? Forty years. And when he died, he was buried in the city of David, named for his father. Then his son, who? Rehoboam, became the next king. By the way, if I miss up names, you will too. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. At the end of King Solomon's reign, he became obsessed with building projects. Okay, So he was doing these massive building projects. And to pay for them, he did it the old-fashioned way. He taxed the people. And all the people from California said, oh my goodness. You know what I'm talking about though, right? He forced them to pay these enormous taxes and he forced them even to participate in labor for these building projects. And, and the situation is as Solomon dies, is he's handing the kingdom off to his son. But get this, Rehoboam is not the only sheriff in town. There's another Boam. His name is Jeroboam. Say Jeroboam. Jeroboam, Jeroboam, there's another new sheriff in town. That's how this story goes. There's a a second guy mixed up in all of this. In 1 Kings chapter 12, 3 through 4, it says this. Then the leaders of Israel summoned him. The him is Rehoboam. And who? Jeroboam. Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with who? Rehoboam. Jeroboam's going to speak with Rehoboam. Your father was a hard master, they said. Lighten the harsh labor demands and what? Oh, say it with gusto, California. And the heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. Then we will be your what? Loyal subjects. Okay, so this morning I'm going to give you two kings for the price of one. You're welcome, Okay. Two kings for the price of one. We're going to talk about Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They are the Bohem Bros. Only they weren't brothers, and they, they, you're going to find out didn't like each other. In First Kings chapter 11, we see that God had picked Jeroboam to be the next king of Israel, not Rehoboam. Okay. Now, that didn't sit so well with King Solomon because Jeroboam wasn't his actual son. He was just kind of in the court, and Rehoboam was his actual son. And so King Solomon's going to have Jeroboam killed, and Jeroboam runs off to Egypt. Okay? Are you with me? Rehoboam's his son. Jeroboam's off in Egypt hiding, fleeing from King Solomon. And he stayed there until King Solomon died. Now, when Solomon died, uh, he returned when Rehoboam became king. And and so here's the problem: you got two sheriffs, you got two kings in the same town trying to run the show at this point. And the, there's the one that God anointed king, Jeroboam, and the one that Solomon appointed king, his son Rehoboam. Okay, and things get messy when there are two leaders. Amen. Yeah. So Jeroboam brings the people. Jeroboam brings the people's request to the king, and these people have been living under heavy burden. They are being taxed to death. And King Rehoboam, hears their request. And then he says, let me think about it for a few days. Okay. They say, lighten the load on us. Don't, don't make us uh, do all of that. Okay. And so this is where we see, and this is where the good advice and bad advice sort of comes in. Rehoboam ignores some good advice. Rehoboam ignores some good advice. In first Kings chapter 12, the story continues. It says, then King who Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon what is your advice he asked how should I answer these people the older counselors replied if you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a what a favorable answer they will always be your loyal subjects but Rehoboam what he do He rejected the advice, circle, highlight, underline, rejected the advice. He rejected the advice of the older men and instead asked the opinion of who? The young men who had what? Who had grown up with him and were now his advisors. So he goes to the elders of the community, right? And he says, what should I do? And they say, you should ease up on the people. You should stop the gas tax because it is $6.50 a gallon at the pump. Amen, anyone? Yeah. Like, like you, you, you gotta ease up on us. At some point, it's, it's not gonna work out. And, and he says, your father has been tough on them. But instead of listening to those older guys, he decided to ignore their advice and ask the young men who had grown up with him, don't miss this, these are his cronies, this is his posse, this is his crew, this is his yes-men, right? And, and And they say, they tell the king what he wants to hear, basically. These guys are telling the king what he wants to hear. And so listen to the scriptures in 1 Kings 12, 14. It says, and followed the counsel of his younger advisors. Again, highlight. Underline, circle, followed the counsel of his younger advisors. And he told the people, My father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them what? Even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with... By the way, this is not a good political speech. Can I just tell you right now? That's not what you want to do. So the king paid no attention to the people. And this turn of events was the will of the Lord. For it fulfilled the Lord's message to who? Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh. So Rehoboam ignores, rejects this advice of the older men, and he goes with the advice of these younger guys, and they say, keep taxing them. Keep making them work on your projects. Don't back off now. Now's the time to give it to the people, right? Make them work harder. Grind these people down. Show them who's boss. You think it was hard before? Wait till I get done with you. Wait till the taxes come in next year. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been asked for advice and then the person just went ahead and did what they were gonna do anyway? You ever had that happen where somebody asks you advice and you think about it and you genuinely give some feedback and then they go and do the exact opposite thing because they had already decided in their mind, right? And you think to yourself, why did you even ask me anyway? I don't even know why you asked me. Or, or get this, have you ever asked advice of several different people for some big decision you have in your life, and you get extremely different answers from the different people? You know what I'm talking about? Like they just all, and you're sitting there going, well, well, now what do I do? And the question is, and as I look at this passage, this idea of good advice and bad advice jumps off the page at me. Here's the question that I think we need to answer. How do we tell the difference between good advice and bad advice? how do we tell the difference between good advice and bad advice? I want to give you where good advice comes from. Good advice comes from three things. First, it's God's word. God's word is the source of all good advice. That's where it comes from. It is written in the pages of this book over and over again, the way that we are supposed to live our life. The second way that we get good advice is through prayer and fasting. That we take what we already know from God's word and we bring it to God in prayer and we ask very specific questions about the circumstance that we're in. We say, God, show me. God, tell me. I don't know what you're facing today, but you may be at a crossroads and you're thinking, what do I do? Ask God, show me, tell me. And honestly, fasting is one of those things that we've sort of given up on as a culture. Do you know we've only done that in about the last hundred years or so? Fasting is when the decision is so important that we're gonna fast from something in order to focus our mind and our heart on God's word and on praying for that thing over and over and over again. For some of us, we fast from food. And every time you feel hunger in your belly, you think, oh, I'm supposed to be praying about this. Some people fast from media or or social media and it's every time you're like, oh, I wanna get online or I wanna look at a screen, you're like, no, no, I'm supposed to be praying about this because I need some advice from you, God. So that's prayer and fasting. And then the last one is this. It's from wise and godly people. The wise and godly people that God has put into your life, right? You need to talk with those people. And here are the people that I think God needs to use in your life. They are, first of all, people that know God and and really know you. People who know your situation. They know your history, You've got to seek out those wise and godly people and ask for advice. Proverbs 15, says it this way. It says, plans go wrong for lack of what? Advice. But at what? Many advisors brings what? Success. You need to go to these wise and godly people in your life and ask for advice. The, the problem is, the problem, a lot of times, is that we go and we ask for a lot of advice, but then then we—that's where we stop. We seek out this good and godly advice, but then you have to follow through on whatever they tell you. And too often, we're we're faced with a situation and we pray about it and we ask God about it and and we look we look into the Word and we even get some godly counsel, and then we say, "Nah, I think I'm just going to do what I was going to do anyway." I I don't know if I'm the only one who does this. But many times we aren't looking for good advice. What we're looking for is someone to tell us what we want to hear. Tell us what we want to do. We just want a yes man. Good and godly advice comes from people who know God. I mean really know God. Good and godly advice comes from people who know you. And I mean really know you. Like they know you inside and out. And they know your struggles, they know your weaknesses, they know your strengths. And get this, this is the most important thing for good and godly advice. You ready? They aren't afraid to tell you the truth. They aren't afraid to tell you what you need to hear, when you need to hear it, even if it's not going to be what you want to hear. So the question I asked this morning is, is, who is that in your life? Who do you have in your life that's doing that? When you need good and godly advice, are, are you going to them? Are you looking for true wisdom? Who will tell you the hard truth, even if it's not the popular truth? Who, someone, someone who may not just agree with you. Someone who will actually tell you what you need to hear. Because here's the funny thing. This, this story, the temptation of this story is to make it about good advice and bad advice. That's the temptation of the story. But and good advice and bad advice plays a big part in this story. But there's something bigger at work in here if you look at the story. See, God is up to something bigger. And we need to realize that good advice or bad advice, it doesn't matter in some circumstances because this. No advice can stop God's plan. No advice can stop God's plan. No matter the bad advice you've been given. Um, just the other day we had a, a, a setback in my family with, with one of my daughters, and and she called me up, and it had a, a bad thing, and it had gone badly, and the first thing she said to me, she said, Dad, I got some bad advice, and it, and it's, it's that easy to understand that, oh, I got some bad advice, and I need to realign. I need to realign with, with what's going on, but here's the deal. No matter the bad advice you've gotten, no matter the bad choices that you have making, you can't stop God's plan. See, when the people heard Rehoboam's answer, you can imagine what they did, right? If, if you heard, hey, we're going to tax you harder, and hey, we're going to, instead of whipping you with whips, we're going to whip you with scorpions, uh, what do you think they said? They said, the heck with you, right? They said, Jeroboam should be our king. Everybody, Jeroboam, 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 Jeroboam. That's what they did. And so they raised up Jeroboam, and get this, the nation of Israel splits in two, God's people. That they had pulled together and finally gotten into the promised land. They split into two. And Jeroboam would take ten tribes of Israel and he would rule the northern kingdom. And and Jeroboam would continue to be the king of, or excuse me, Rehoboam would continue to be the king of Judah and and the two tribes to the south. And so we see that this was going to happen because uh, God had told them this to Solomon at the very beginning, right? He said, I'm going to rip this apart from you. And so Rehoboam goes back to Jerusalem and immediately forms an army, okay? He forms this army to go to war with Jeroboam. 180,000 men mustered up and ready to go to war. That's the population of Elk Grove, everyone, 180,000 men ready to go to war. This is civil war. This is brother against brother, tribe against tribe. This once mighty nation of God, the people are getting ready to fight and kill each other, brother against brother. But God steps in. In 1 Kings 12, 24, it says this. This is what the Lord said. Do not fight against who? Don't fight against your relatives or your brothers, the Israelites. Go back home for this... For what has happened is my doing. This is my doing. So they obeyed the message of the Lord and went home as the Lord had commanded. So, no matter the advice, if God has a plan, God's plan is going to happen. Amen? And no matter the advice, no matter the circumstance, there has never once in the history of history been something that somebody gave somebody some bad advice, they made a bad decision, and God went, Oh no, what will I do? That's never happened to God, okay? Like, like, God has a plan, and if God has a plan, he's going to make his plan happen, okay? Um, and so, it's not just Rehoboam who took the bad advice. Get this, Jeroboam blows it too. Jeroboam follows some bad advice. Like, really bad advice. Take a look at this. 1 Kings twelve twenty six says, Jeroboam thought to himself, Unless I'm careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. When these people go to Jerusalem, which was in Rehoboam's territory, to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to king who? Rehoboam of Judah. And they will kill me and make make him their king instead. So, what does it say? Circle, highlight, underline. On the advice of his counselors, the king made... Does anybody else just cringe when they read that? He makes two golden calves. He said to the people, Is it too much trouble for you is it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, here are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Are you kidding me? Right? He placed these calf idols in Bethel and Dan and at either end of his kingdom. But this became a what? A great sin for the people worship the idols traveling as far north as Dan to worship the other one there. Worship the one there. Jeroboam doesn't want his people making the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. He's afraid they'll, they'll come under King Rehoboam and just say, yeah, we'll, we'll go back to Rehoboam. And so he makes these golden calves so the people can worship there. And he sought advice too. And these guys must have told him, hey, golden calves, that's a great idea. We should make some golden calves. Does anybody else remember how the golden calves thing ended the last time? Didn't go so well, did it? Right? And yet he casts these golden calves and he throws them up. There's good advice, there's bad advice, and there's ugly advice. Can I get an amen out of anyone? Building golden calves is ugly advice. And sure enough, they build these calves and, and, uh, and it's unbelievable to me, this became a great sin. Duh, became a great sin. But if we're being honest, like how often are we like Jeroboam, right? You go directly against what you know God wants for you. You go directly against what you know God's word says, right? You go directly against whatever God wants for your life. And, and, and be, why? Because I don't want to do that. I just don't want to do that. Right? I am not gonna ask for a show of hands because that would be awkward, but I, I do this over and over again where I know what God is calling me to do. I know what He wants me to do, and I I just go, I yeah, I don't want to do that, God. Right? We know the right thing, and God is obviously asking me to do it, but I really don't want to do that thing, God. Here's the thing, and this is the part that I just I've been wrestling with this week. Someday. Someday, way off in the future, people are going to remember you for something. People are going to remember you for something. What we do today is going to influence how we are remembered. This is a tongue twister, but I think it makes the point. When the present becomes the past, our legacy depends on our decisions and actions of today. Let me say that one more time. When the present becomes the past, our legacy depends on our decisions and actions of today. Someday today is going to be five years ago. Someday today is going to be 10 years ago or 15 years ago, right? And we're going to look back on it. How many people remember when I was a kid growing up, I remember trying to do the math to figure out how old I was going to be when the turn of the century came. Y2K, I was going to be 32 years old when it was the turn of the century. That is 20 years ago now, people. Someday today is going to be 20 years in the past. And how people remember you, are are you going to look back at today and your decisions and the way you follow God and look back with regret? Or are you going to look back and are you going to say, man, I did what God called me to do. I did what was right. I did what God called me to do and I did what was right. Because Jeroboam isn't going to look back like that. His, he let some bad advice and his own actions destroy what God wanted to, do, to him, do through him as king. Listen to his legacy. This is Jeroboam's legacy. I ripped the kingdom away from the family of David and gave it to who? I gave you the kingdom, Jeroboam. I gave it to you. But you have not been, my ser- been, but you have not been like my servant David who obeyed my commands and followed me with all of his heart and always did whatever I wanted. You have done what? More evil than all who lived before you. You have made other gods for yourself and have made me furious with your golden calves. And since you have turned your back on me, you, you, you see, God is ticked at Jeroboam. But Rehoboam was no better. You got two kings, and neither one of them are following God. Both of them just want to do what they want to do. So that leads me to So what, Steve? What do we do with this? How do we make any sense of this weird story about the Boehm brothers? Well, what is this story really about? It's, a, it's about division. It's about dividing God's kingdom into two. God's kingdom is divided. It's ripped apart. And we see that in Scripture again and again, this idea of unity versus division. In, in uh, Mark chapter 3, we see where it says this. A kingdom divided by civil war will what? Collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by what? Feuding. Feuding will fall apart. You got these two kings and they've divided God's people. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever seen our world any more divided than you see it right now? You ever seen it more divided than it is right now? People screaming at each other about everything. Democrat. Republican, the haves and the have nots, the rich and the poor, racial division. It breaks my heart to watch how our communities are divided, how our nation has become so divided, how even in our families, even in churches, churches fight about the stupidest stuff ever. Do you know that? You know, Jesus in John 17 says, I pray that they will all be one just as we are one. So Jesus said, he's calling us to unity. In a time where everything is so polarized and so divided, we have got to embrace unity in a way that makes the whole world go, what is the deal with those people? They don't look the same. They maybe even don't think the same about everything. But look how together they are. Look how much they love one another. Look how united they are. That is what we are called to and right now in your life you may be facing some division maybe you've got a broken relationship how can you bring unity back maybe you're at a maybe you're just argumentative with everyone about everything how can you bring unity back to those relationships division brings chaos how can we bring healing and peace and unity in a world that is so divided And the second so what is a little bit more personal, and I want you to think about this. What will your legacy be? When people remember you, what will they think? What will they remember about you? A long time ago, I came across this story that moves me every time I read it. And it's a story about um, a small white envelope that gets stuck in the Christmas tree every Christmas Eve. There's no name on it, no identification, no, no uh, inscription, but it's peaked through the branches of this tree for almost 10 years. And the gal writing this says, it all began with my husband Mike who hated Christmas. He didn't hate Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas, he just hated the commercial aspects of Christmas. You know, the overspending and the frantic running around because you got to get a, a tie for Uncle Harry or, or those random little gifts that are given in desperation because you couldn't think of anything else. And she said, knowing he felt this way, one year I decided to bypass the usual shirts and sweaters and ties and whatever else. And I wanted to get something special for Mike, and the inspiration came in an unusual way. She said, our son Kevin, who was 12 that year, was wrestling at the junior level at the school he attended, and, and that day, before, shortly before Christmas, they had had this non-league match with a team that was sponsored by an inner-city church, and, and uh, they were mostly black kids, and, and they, were, uh, they were dressed in sneakers that were so ragged that the shoestrings seemed to be the only thing holding the shoes together, and, and, and they presented this sharp contrast to our team, which was, you know, kids in sparkling blue and gold uniforms, and, and their shoes were brand new said, so in fact, these kids, when they came out to wrestle, some of them were wrestling even without headgear, which is those protective ear cups that they wear while they're wrestling. And they, it was just, they couldn't afford them for a ragtag wrestling team like that. She said, we, we destroyed them, beat them in every single weight class, and as each of their kids got up after losing, they kind of walked off with that street bravado, like, you know, but, but he could tell that their spirit was breaking inside, and and Mike, who was seated next to her, said, uh, man, I, ju- I wish just one of those kids could have won. They got a lot of potential, but losing like this could take the heart right out of them. See, Mike loved kids. He loved all kids. He'd coached Little League, and he'd coached football and baseball and lacrosse. And, and uh, that's when the idea for the present came. So Mike's wife went to a local sporting goods store and bought an assortment of wrestling headgear and shoes and sent them anonymously to this inner city church. She said, on Christmas Eve, I placed this envelope on the tree and the note inside telling Mike what I had done and that that was my gift for him. She said, the brightest thing about that Christmas was Mike's smile when he was reading this note in the white envelope. She said, every year I I followed this tradition, right? One year I sent a group of mentally handicapped youngsters to a hockey game, and another year I wrote a check to a pair of elderly brothers whose home had burned down shortly before Christmas, and on and on and on. She said, eventually the the envelope became the highlight of Christmas. It was always the last thing that they opened on Christmas morning. And she said, even our children would put down and ignore their brand new toys in order to watch Mike open this envelope every Christmas morning. With wide-eyed anticipation as he lifted the envelope from the tree. And as the children grew up, he said the toys, you know, got to be more practical presents. And, but the envelope never lost its allure. And this, here's the thing, the story doesn't end there. She says, we lost Mike last year to cancer. She said, when Christmas rolled around, I, I was still so wrapped up in grief, I could barely get the tree up. But Christmas Eve found me placing a white envelope in the tree. She said when she woke up the next morning, she found that next to her white envelope were three more white envelopes placed by each of her kids. Unbeknown to each other, they had all placed a white envelope on the tree for their dad. And this tradition had grown Further, eventually with grandchildren standing around the tree, wide-eyed, anticipating to watch as their fathers take down the envelope. Mike left a legacy of kindness and of generosity. What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to be remembered for? What is your legacy? What choices and decisions are you making today that you are going to define your legacy five years, ten years from now? Don't you want your children to pass down and thank God for the legacy that you passed on to them? Some of you may be thinking here today, you may be sitting here today thinking, Steve, you have no idea what my life is like. I have messed it up so bad. There is not a legacy for me anymore. I have ruined it too bad. Let me tell you a story. God is in the absolute business of rewriting stories. That's what he does. He takes bad stories and turns them into good stories. He takes ugly stories and turns them into beautiful stories. That's what he does. He can change your legacy if you choose today to define your legacy that way. Let me ask you a question. When you hear the names Rehoboam and Jeroboam, what do you think of? Nothing, right? How many people today may have been the first time you ever heard of Rehoboam and Jeroboam? You don't think anything about them, right? They have no legacy. Why? Because they made choices back then that uh, they left a legacy of division and disappointment. But another king would come along that would leave a legacy of faith. And his name is King Asa, and Glenn's going to tell you about him next week. But I wanted you to see that King Asa, who would come down the line, he's going to end up being a grandson of Rehoboam, and he was fully committed to the Lord. In 1 Kings 15, 11, it said this, Asa did what was what? Pleasing in the Lord's sight, and his ancestor David had done. In all this chaos, a division and chaos of Jeroboam's life, Asa steps in and does what's right in the Lord. He worshiped the Lord God and returned his people. Listen, that's the legacy I wanna leave. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I want people to say, Steve couldn't ride a horse to save his life. But he was fully committed to the Lord. And you gotta make decisions today if you're gonna leave that kind of legacy. Would you join me in prayer, God? Father, as we look at this These stories of these kings, would you restore unto us a vision for our own legacy, God? Help us to see the opportunities that are in front of us, God. There are those who are facing decisions today that they're looking for advice, God. I pray that you would bring good and godly wisdom into their world, God. That they would search your word, that they would pray and fast, God. That they would look to uh, good and godly advice from people in their world who know you and know them and and are willing to speak the hard truth. God, help us to lean into that and to make a difference in the life of others, God, that our legacy might be cemented today because of the things that we... Our legacy in the future would be cemented today by the things that we choose to do today. God, let us be fully committed to you and to your kingdom and to living that out daily. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.